We partner with the community and you start by understanding their cultural values and what's important to them. And then together with them, you build uh, protocols and programs that fit their cultural values. Welcome to Transcending Home Care. Stan Massey of Transcend Strategy Group holds vital discussions with other experts on insights and ideas to help providers succeed in the ever-changing landscape of home-based health care. For more than 18 years now, Stan has helped providers of senior care and home-based care build their brands to increase referrals, admissions, staff retention, and performance scores. This special episode features a conversation with Ranit Elk, PhD professor in the School of Medicine at University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Elk and host Stan Massey discuss her critically important research and pilot program to create culturally based protocols for palliative and hospice care, helping to better serve minority populations in an ongoing quest for healthcare equality. Dr. Elk, I really appreciate you joining me to discuss the tremendously important project you've led to develop culturally-based protocols for palliative and hospice care. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. Anytime I get a chance to talk about it, I'm happy to do it. My vision is to have this be a very widespread practice at some stage, and so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. What were some of the glaring disparities you saw that prompted you to begin your research on this issue? Well, first of all, the reality is that what we have, the end of life, I don't really like to use the term end of life, but really the the protocol that's available that that physicians are trained on in terms of end of life care is very much based, it's a very caring protocol, it's very much geared towards the individual patient, but there's lots of aspects of it that are based on the white middle class Christian model, as a, which is absolutely wonderful if you're white, middle class, and Christian. It's not so great if you're not any of those things. And why? Because there's many aspects that are critical in, in one culture than in, and not in another. So let me give you one very easy example. We're very much geared towards what does the individual want? What does the patient want? I mean, it's, it sounds wonderful. But in many cultures, what we call collectivist cultures, where it's not just the individual that's important, but the family, maybe the community, maybe the pastor, as in the African-American culture. And so there, it's not just what the patient wants, but it's also what the whole community or the whole family and the pastor wants. And so these aspects weren't being taken into consideration However, one of the things that I heard from a lot of my clinician colleagues is that many African-Americans, and and this has since been completely verified for me in focus groups with African-Americans, and I'm talking only about the South now, I cannot generalize to the North. Many African-Americans have this wonderful belief in hope, the hope that a miracle can happen And this belief in hope is so integral to the African-American community, which is how they were sustained through all the years of of slavery and and other um, horrific sufferings that they've suffered. But when you say hope, and the physician who is trained primarily in terms of 
Communication, yes, but also looking at the scientific data. So they're looking at it and they're saying, I don't get it. This creatinine levels are like this and the kidney levels are like that. They're not looking at the reality. They're just sort of, you know, they're closing their eyes to the reality. Um, they're in denial. And then they treat the patient as in denial. So it gets into an argument, sort of, no, I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith, your, your husband or your daughter, whatever, look at their numbers. The numbers are showing that this person is going to be dying soon and there is really no hope. But we're talking at two different levels. One is a hope that a miracle can happen and one is a reality in terms of the physical numbers. Now, miracles do happen. Unfortunately, they're rare, but they do happen. And the key is the belief that in, in certain cultures, including the African-American culture, that we very much respect you as the physician. However, it is not you that decides, it is God that decides. And this lack of understanding by clinicians and then getting into this sort of discussion with family members where family members get really upset because the doctor is not understanding, the doctor is saying to them that these figures are high and these figures are low, but he's not recognizing that a miracle can happen. And so the voices of the families get raised, obviously, because they're upset. And, and the physician walks out of the room and says to a nurse, oh, this is a very difficult family, very challenging family. You go calm them down. <laughs> and all that could have been prevented had they understood this concept, had they understood how important hope was, had they understood that really... It is a belief in God, and God is the decider. And, and we've actually done this in a role play at a conference where we had one physician doing exactly that, you know, pointing out to the numbers. You know, we asked one of our colleagues to act it. And he's kind of a reserved uh, person, but he is African-American. He's a physician. And when the physician was, the person who was playing the physician was saying, but look at these numbers, and he was referring to his mother, who was also role-playing, and um, look at these numbers and obviously not understanding, this physician who was actually acting got so um, upset personally that the physician was not understanding the concept of hope, <laughs> that he physically stood up. And he's a very reserved kind of person, and he physically stood up and said, you are not understanding. And then we explained some things, especially about the concept of hope, we had a wonderful pastor explain the concept of hope and how key it is into the African-American community. And um, as well as God is making the decision. And then I had this board where it says, take two, <laughs> like in a movie set. And we said, okay, take two. And we role played again where the physician understood it. So the physician knows, yes, figures look this way, the numbers look that way. There's a very small likelihood that in, in scientific terms, in the physiological terms that the person is going to, you know, re recover. However, what is so terrible by saying to somebody, a miracle could happen? Yes, God is the decider. And when the person who was acting it did it, you could see the re relief, the whole relief. It's sort of, A, it's a relief, so I don't have to argue with you, and B, it's respectful. He's respecting my culture. So that's what prompted me to do this work. Well, that is really intriguing and 
also really rings true with what I've seen in work uh, that our clients have done, uh, especially with African-Americans. Based on those findings and this really tapping into the idea of hope, what are some of the solutions uh, besides accepting that belief have you found to be effective in tailoring protocols for minorities, um, especially African-Americans, during a serious illness? So here's the thing. I always get into little bits of arguments with people who say tailoring, because tailoring is one thing, but you're actually taking a concept that has been developed for other groups of people and then trying to adapt it. What I like to do is use a a method called community-based participatory research, which is a fancy name for saying partnering with the community. And we partner with the community and you start by understanding their cultural values and what's important to them. And then together with them, you build uh, protocols and programs that fit their cultural value. So that's key. Now, getting it incorporated and getting clinicians to understand it is far more challenging. I have a set of videos that was created, um, one of my studies, it it was created completely by African-American community members, healthcare providers, as well as pastors, who, by the way, are key in African-American community, not only in illness and health, but in every aspect. And so they created a series of videos with certain messages, for example, the one of hope. And the way they wanted to do it is they did, they acted it out. They created a scenario. All I did was take the notes and then they acted it out. And I had a videographer film it. I came with these videos. I was beside myself. I said, I have diamonds in my hands. This is what the community told us. Well, what I wasn't expecting, and I should have, um, there was a lot of resistance. There isn't a lot of self-insight into physician training, like there is for social work, there is for chaplaincy, there is for psychology, and there is for nursing. And so the resistance and the pushback is not what I expected, although I should have, it's, it's actually very common. The wonderful thing that we've done now is developed a protocol, um, which I haven't developed, but my colleague, Dr. Barnett has. He is an educator. He even teaches physicians about how to have serious conversations and to give bad news and how to do it respectfully. And it's a way, you ha- it's a process. It is not a, here's the information. Any of us can read a book and say, oh, this is it. No, that isn't sufficient. The intellectual knowledge isn't sufficient. You have to get it inside yourself. And um, it's beautiful to watch how he facilitates these meetings where they see the video. At first, there's pushback um, and resistance, and then there's more self-insight. And then he does, you know, more discussions about, have you seen this in practice? And at the end of this, we have a three-hour training program Um, And at the end of it, you can see the change. This is part of a study because we're testing to see how effective it is in changing clinical practice, in changing knowledge of the clinicians for what they understand about these values of people in particular ethnic groups um, and how to ask about it, as well as, you know, we follow up to see how much of their practice has changed. And, I mean, really in the beginning of the meeting, 
when he does ask for the initial responses, I'm digging my fingernails <laughs> into the palms of my hands because I'm just so disappointed and upset that there isn't recognition. And somewhere along the way, there's recognition. Of, oh, wait, let's listen to what the community is telling us. And by the end of it, people get it. And I'm sitting there and there are tears coming down my face. Tears, because I can see that they have got it. Um, and that, unfortunately, is a process, just like understanding racism is a, is a process. It's not something that we can, um, unfortunately, read a book and, okay, now I've got it. No, you have to process it. And there's various steps in the process. And I'm so fortunate to have Dr. Barnett, that, um, whom I can partner with, and so that's what he does. I work with the community, and then he does the training of clinicians and it, it, oh, I just can't wait for that study to be published. We, we haven't finished, but as soon as it's published, I'll let you know. Very good. That story is actually very encouraging. And I also appreciate you calling me out on the word tailoring because you are absolutely right. And uh, that's the only way that we can learn. Words matter. And I, I appreciate that correction. It's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, but it's just so many people come to me and say, oh, can you help me tailor this thing? And, I, and the hair on the back of my neck raises, you know. And it's not a bad thing. It's how people used to do it all the time and unfortunately still do. This other method that I'm talking about, is it's much more time consuming. And people say, well, we don't have the resources. We don't have the time. We don't have the staff to do it. Well, if you respect the people, you will do it. Understood. And I took no offense at all at it. I, I thought that was a really good part of the conversation. Uh, you come originally from outside the United States and have studied hospice and palliative care in, in other countries. What are some of the biggest differences you see between care models in the U.S. and elsewhere? Actually, I only learned about hospice and palliative care here. However, I am the global editor in a journal called Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, where we receive articles from um, other countries, and many of them are from African countries, but not only, there's some in the Middle East. And what you can see is in countries with low resources, in other words, where there isn't sufficient income and so on, um, there's much more suffering with pain, much more, which is awful. And there are wonderful efforts, for example, in Africa. It began in Uganda, and people from Africa or all over the continent come to Uganda for training in palliative care, which is extremely exciting. The other thing that's happened is that I am now mentoring people from various countries who recognize the importance of this cultural aspect that was just missing. It was just missing in everything that we were being taught in palliative care and in hospice care. And so I am mentoring people. You can do it, you know, across the countries, uh, across the oceans. It makes no difference. You just do Zoom or Skype or something. And I mentor them step by step. So we've done one in Ghana and one in Puerto Rico. Um, and um, I have consulted with people in Nigeria and South Africa and several other groups that want to, want to do that, implement this in their country. In other words, do the study. It takes a long time, and writing grants is challenging. I love doing it, but it, it, it takes time and effort. Also, there are several physicians who have contacted me to do this in other populations. So, for example, we've done 
it now with African-American and white, somebody else is going to be doing it with a Latinx population. Somebody else wants to do it with a Hindu population, somebody else with a Muslim population. And this is sort of like my fantasy coming true because the more we have, the more clinicians will see, oh, 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 it can't be the same for all. Let me quickly read what they said about the um, Latinx. Now, the difficulty is if they don't understand the culture or they don't respect the culture, that's a whole other issue about people's intercultural sensitivity. It's sort of on a gradient. Um, most people think that they are very sensitive, um, but in actual fact, it turns out that hmm, not really. And I think part of it, somebody asked me once, and I said, I just don't think in the US we are taught to understand um, it's sort of more of a melting pot philosophy as opposed to, wow, um, this group does it this way, this group does it that way. I wonder what their values are. It's fascinating. Um, and so if we'd had that kind of curiosity and that kind of interest, I think um, that's probably, we don't in the U.S. primarily. I mean, such a generalization. But if, if we had, I think it would be much easier for people to respect other cultures um, especially when people are so ill and even more so when they're dying. Because one of the things that's key is we all, every single human being on this planet, sees illness, sees suffering, sees impending death and death, all through our own cultural lens, whatever our culture is. And it could be multiple factors. For example, somebody could say, my culture is African-American and religion and Southern, you know, whatever it is, it, it, you look at it through that lens. And if we can get people to understand that, we wrote a paper on that, you know, again, it's an intellectual thing. You can read it and sort of goes in one ear, out the other. You understand it intellectually, but not internally. Once people get it, that will be the difference. That will be a solution. Absolutely. That, that is fascinating. I learned about you by reading an article regarding a, a test site, if you will, for culturally based protocols that you launched in Beaufort, South Carolina. Why did you choose that location for your, your test site for the cultural protocols? Well, first of all, I was at the University of South Carolina at the time. The reason I was interested in rural areas primarily is because if you look at where there are palliative care programs around the country, the rural areas are the ones that were very much lacking. Now, there are hospices, but there weren't necessarily palliative care programs. In fact, I collaborated when I started all those years ago with a palliative care physician in Chicago, and people are like, what? What's Chicago? Well, because he was a palliative care physician that I knew well, who was willing to partner with me on this project, you know, through Skype and other methods, we were able to partner. But there weren't any palliative care physicians in South Carolina at the time. Now, that has changed, which is wonderful. But we still have the challenge of people in rural areas. And when you asked me earlier about what is the difference in some of the areas, well, even in Australia, as well in some African countries, in the rural areas, they use much more telehealth, which is much more, in many ways, helpful for the community members who don't have to travel so far away from their family and their home 
and their community and their culture, frankly. So that, uh, we've just finished a paper, it'll come out soon, about the use of palliative, I mean, telehealth in palliative care. It's not ideal, it's a, it's a, it's, but it brings palliative care to the rural areas, which is why uh, Beaufort, South Carolina was the area. Understood. We actually at my company, Transcend, have been focusing a lot of attention on telehealth, uh, realizing that COVID-19 sort of let the genie out of the bottle and that there is lots of uses for it that we haven't even explored yet. So that will be interesting to see what, what happens. Do you feel that recent equality movements such as Black Lives Matter has focused a brighter spotlight on your efforts with minorities? Oh, all of a sudden, I was like, 400 years later, you know, you finally woke up, which is, I realize is a mean thing to say. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, for 30 years, I've been fighting this in one way or another, advocating for this. And um, so it's, it's great to see a change. Suddenly, people who were always, it's always the people who were interested in this, but were kind of awkward or not sure if this was a good thing for their careers or... Um, are now finding the courage to call me. I mean, every week there's somebody else who wants to do a study partnering with, with underserved populations. And I, I cannot tell you how excited I am. There was a, there's an editorial that I wrote about how to communicate with African-Americans. And the thing, what I said was the first step we have to do is to acknowledge, respect, and talk about the atrociousness of the suffering that our African-American patients have suffered. And so that's how we start with it. And wow, nobody else said anything. Nobody responded to that. I was like, okay, well now people are interested in that editorial. Now it makes sense, sort of with this awakening that people have had. I, I'm, I'm, I'm over this. Um, upset that it took 400 years. I'm now at the phase of, oh, good, let's go, let's go, let's go. What's next for your research or your endeavors to increase utilization of hospice and palliative care among minorities? So we just started another study. As you know, the work that I do is in partnering with communities. We are guided by African-American pastors in, in Birmingham. And before I started launching another study in the rural areas, they said, no, 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 we need something here in Birmingham. So that's number one. Number two is, is this whole focus on advanced directives. It's a piece of paper, it's a legal document, and there are multiple methods for getting people to, to fill it in. What is the purpose of it? The purpose is for the physician to understand what are the goals of care of the person who is extremely ill and probably isn't able to communicate with themselves. Great idea, great concept. What's happened is that, like, um, I was in a focus group the other day and people were saying, the first thing, my husband is in the ER, and the first thing I get told, do you have an advanced care directive? Well, the data shows that, number one, African-Americans, significantly lower percentage, and rightly so. First of all, there's the oral tradition of we tell our family members what they want. Secondly, there is the issue of if I sign something, a piece of paper for you white doctors, you're not going to do anything for my loved one. You say it's no CPR, 
but then you're not going to do this or this or this or this. You know, all these other things, that, like a peg, which is a way of artificial feeding, that, that you're saying it's suffering. She's not going to do anything. You're just going to let her die. So I'm not signing any piece of paper. But we keep pushing it and pushing it. In fact, Dr. Morrison just recently wrote an editorial of um, how many hundreds and thousands um, have been spent on this method and, and how it doesn't work. And now that the insurance pays for it, of course, the insurance companies very nicely came on board to pay for it, but it's become a sort of a factory um, that is churning along, but we've forgotten the reason for it. And it's absolutely not working with African-Americans. And people have tried this method and that method and this method and that method, and I respect those methods, however, Nobody went to the African American community and said, what are your values? What would, how would you like to tell the doctor um, how to treat your mother? So we call it a goals of care conversation. And we are going to be developing a goals of care conversation guide that is culturally appropriate for African Americans. Um, it's going to be the first one that people have done other people have taken and adapted models <laughs> um, by showing them to the community and saying, you like this, you like that, uh, change this, change that. But nobody has gone back to the community and built it from the ground up. And that's what we've started. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people in hospice and palliative care and healthcare in general really think that advanced directives are the holy grail. And while they're so important, Yours is the first opinion that I've heard that pointed out some of the, the shortcomings, especially with uh, minority populations, and I, I appreciate that. Dr. Uck, do you think there are any other aspects of your studies or findings that you think are important to discuss that we haven't already covered? Uh, no, but if anybody wants to do uh, studies uh, with me, you know, any researchers, you have to have some research background because I really can't teach basic research background, but sometimes... I get physicians who call me and say, I don't know much about research, but you know, I do clinical stuff. Can you mentor me in doing this with my patients? And I'm like, yes, or nurses or nurse practitioners. If they have the time and they know how to write small grants um, to get the beginning money, it's not a lot, five or $6,000, we can always write the larger grants um, together later. But I'm very happy to mentor people and it's interesting, the other day somebody said, oh, can I speak to you about that? I said, certainly. Next thing I know, there's a phone call with 10 people on it. I was like, oh, what is this? I must have misunderstood. I've got a meeting, 10 people. What, what am I doing? Uh, no, she just asked her colleagues, all of whom were really, really interested. And they were all either oncologists or, or uh, palliative care physicians or both. Um, and so it was very exciting. Well, I will vouch for our listening audience that I just contacted Dr. Elk out of the blue, and she was very gracious with her time and agreed to do this podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will appreciate your offer to mentor them, especially in any research endeavors. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Elk, for this really vital conversation. And I just want to give you our best wishes in this really important work that you continue to do. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Watch for future episodes of Transcending Home Care on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. For more content, visit transcend-strategy.com.